This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I am particularly interested in this. This was it, it, um, animated the last question I asked. I'm particularly interested in the drama, the issue of what does it take to bring a human being to will the common good well. It seems to me you, you could say this is the drama of life. This is the moral drama. Coming to the point where, where we are, are willing the common good well is, is one of several ways that we could capture what it is to be the good man. Right? And, and that's what particularly brings me, as you'll see as I proceed here, I'm, I'm just especially impressed that it, in a loving plan of providence, that the household in, in its astounding natural structure is clearly designed to bring all those in it precisely to that point. And so it, it, this, this, in many ways, I, I, I'm going to quote uh, you know, my one time and still in many ways professor, Professor Hittinger, of when, when he pointed out, I don't know, I remember when this was, but it's really stuck with me of we have to discover the, the natural structures and then it is our place to enter into them. And to the extent that we enter into them, the amazing causality that they were designed to have is then discovered. And, and that, that's really, that's the whole point behind my presentation, is that there is an amazing plan, that there's an amazing order and arrangement in this reality called the household that, that, that far transcends our full plumbing. That to the extent, though, that we can, with humility, receive the gifts of the natural order of the household, of family life, and enter into it. This is absolutely essential, and of course, varying depending on, one, on one's vocation life, but of course, universally, right, this is the plan of God and nature, that this is where we come from, right? Everyone should have the first length of his life in one of these amazing things. The point in focusing on that is not then to say, well, gee, then if you don't come from a certain kind of household, you're lost. That, that's not the point. But rather, let's try to understand the gift. Let's try to understand what the natural design is. It's nothing new that political regimes are not doing what they should or are not doing it very well. I quote you from Aristotle. This is one of my lines I come back to a lot. I think it says so much to us today. In the Spartan state alone, or almost alone, the legislator seems to have paid attention to questions of nurture and occupations. In most states, it's a dramatic statement, in most states such matters have been neglected, and each man lives as he pleases, Cyclops fashion, quotes to his own wife and children dealing law, Odyssey 9. Now it's best that there should be a public and proper care for such matters. But if they are neglected by the community, it would seem right for each man to help his children and friends toward virtue, and they should have the power 
or at least the will to do this. A couple quick comments on that. A couple points to note here. Those directly entrusted with a political common good often fail. This does not mean there is no political common good. Even in a sick polis, there is a common good to love and to seek. The same can be said for the church. We can and should be lovers and seekers of the political and ecclesial common goods, even when sick. One thing that tends to be always in our power is to look to our households and friendships, which, by the way, those two are deeply intertwined with one another. Anyone who tries to do a household well without having good friendships is up against a real problem. These are significant ways, and for many people, the main ways we concretely and materially serve the common good, namely by hoeing the row in our households and our friendships. The unprecedented demise, now I'm being, you know, that, that line could you know, raise, raise some question here, but I'm you know, going to just kind of put out there, the unprecedented demise of family and household in our day, and I know that I'm asserting that, that could be a point for discussion, can and should be considered in its direct implications for the common good. I'm convinced that a concern for the common good, which is really synonymous with concern for the human good, must now look in a new way as perhaps never before to the household, its nature, its ends, and how to revitalize it. When St. Thomas asserts the household community is necessary for human life, quotation number two, he that seeks the good of the many seeks in consequence his own good for two reasons. First, because the individual good is impossible without the common good of the family, state, or kingdom. When St. Thomas asserts that the household community is necessary for human life, I want to suggest we too easily restrict this statement to meaning necessary for having and raising children. Yes, there obviously is a unique need in human offspring for this community in the opening years of life, a need we'll consider shortly, briefly, in terms of the common good. Yet we must not forget the other side of this, the need of men and women to be husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. If the household is the primordial instance of a natural common good, which surely it is, we must appreciate that this includes the parents' good, even if their life is in itself many ways an oblation for their children. This in no way excludes their own good from being in the good of the household. Indeed, otherwise it wouldn't be much of a common good. That they discover and enact their own good precisely in putting the good of their children first is perhaps itself the primordial instance of this great truth. The fundamental good human moral disposition is in putting the good of others first, of putting the common good first. So those interested in the common good do well today to look especially, dare I even suggest, to look first to the renewal and flourishing of households. Please note, this in no way means in lieu of the other ways of serving 
and seeking the common good. But I think particularly today, focusing on the households has to be a privileged way precisely of our showing our concern and living out our concern for the common good. To make this case, I'll do three things. One, examine a couple principles and distinctions regarding the common good. Fortunately, we have a great background kind of already set up there for us. Second, consider the nature of the household, the domus, and a couple key features of it in the tradition. And then finally, I'm gonna make bold to make some concrete suggestions at risk of sounding like the guy that's just trying to you know, tell you what to do in your household. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just make some suggestions in view of the general principles I've given. A couple things about the common good. It's always about holes and parts. I'm going to I'm, I'm going to uh, give you quotation number three here in a moment. This I absolutely love St. Thomas's prologue <coughs> to the commentary on the politics. If I may remind you, it, 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 the really neat context here is this. He's saying, just as in the arts, if the disciple wants to learn how to exercise the art, what he needs to do is he needs to look to the artifacts of the master craftsman. This is, this is how you are a disciple. This is how you learn. You want to learn a craft, look at what the one who has the craft, who's the master of it, look at what he's done. So I said, well, this is the way it works in learning how to use human reason. There's a master of acting rationally, and that's God. And God's artifacts is the universe. So if you want to learn how to use reason, says St. Thomas, look to the master, look to the natural world, as it were, study nature. Then you'll be being a disciple of the master in how to use reason. Then he goes on and he says, what you will find when you look in the natural world, what does then St. Thomas focus your attention on? Okay, so now we're going to look at the artifact. We're going to look at the natural world. What do we see there? And this is quotation number three. Now in nature, in its operation, pardon me, now nature in its operation proceeds from the simple to the complex, so that in the things that come about through the operation of nature, that which is most complex is perfect and whole and constitutes the ends of the other things, as is apparent in the case of every whole with respect to its parts. Hence, human reason also, operating from the simple to the complex, proceeds, as it were, from the imperfect to the perfect. So, what are we to learn when we look at the natural world? Think in terms of wholes and parts. This is what the master craftsman has written into things. This is why an Aristotelian view of the natural world is so important and, and, and not a material, uh, the, the going all the way back to Aristotle arguing against Empedocles, Antiphon, those who, who more went to the material constituents of things rather than emphasizing the forms of things, where then you see things as holes. You know, you, tr you treat a tree as a tree, not as a conglomerate of the elements in the periodic table. A tree is a tree. If our view of the natural world has been, has been overly materialized, losing the formal, we're going to lose this. So natural philosophy has consequences in, in learning how to use reason here and think in terms of wholes and parts. The diversity of roles 
I mean, look at, I mean, it, the things you can learn from a tree, the diversity of parts in a tree, but how they all, all those parts in their diversity are participating in slash constituting one good. It's all about teleology. The parts are always for the sake of the whole. The whole and the flourishing of the whole gives meaning to, direction to the parts. Okay, so, so that's what, so it's all about wholes and parts. The natural world is screaming this to us, if we're listening. Second point about the common good. What's the key moral disposition in the human agent? Well, I've already adverted to this. Let's just read the quotation number four here from the Prima Secundae. But a man's will is not right in willing a particular good unless he refer it to the common good as end. That's an incredibly dramatic statement. Man's will is not right in willing a particular good unless he refer it to the common good as end, since even the natural appetite of each part is ordained to the common good of the whole. Now it is the end that supplies the formal reason, as it were, of willing whatever is directed to the end. Consequently, in order that a man will some particular good with the right will, he must will that particular good materially, and now it goes very big, the divine and universal good formally. This moral disposition, I suggest, requires profound cultivation. While there is a natural inclination to the common good, over the particular, that net natural inclination is far from sufficient to bring it about that there will be a steady disposition to refer the particular to the common, dare I say particularly post-fall, where we tend to turn in towards ourselves. How much of, of moral pedagogy must be precisely to draw out that natural disposition towards the common and to try to bring it about that we really do, we really do refer all that we do to these great common goods that is our privilege and honor to participate in and to serve. This is especially constitutive of the moral good, to have that kind of will that now habitually acts in that way. This is not just some abstract wishing. This is the daily disposition of the truly good man, a disposition that's formal with regard to absolutely everything he does and is at the heart of his voluntary agency. Just to throw in this second quotation, number five, just as nothing stands firm with regard to the speculative reason, except that which is traced back to the first instrumental principles. So nothing stands firm with regard to the practical reason, unless it be directed to the last end, which is the common good. So here's saying that from the viewpoint of just, just reasoning. If it's gonna stand firm in the realm of practical reasoning, it must be, as it were, justified ultimately in terms of the common good. All right. Done my first section, two simple points about the common good. Household now, the masterpiece of nature. I'm gonna, don't wanna make a big deal of this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna just note a distinction I'm gonna make between family and household. This is perhaps a little bit of a, of, of a, of a thing in English. Um, you know, St. Thomas does sometimes use familia 
in Latin, but most of the time that he's talking about the what we would call the family, he's actually saying domus, and he's talking about the natural community called the household. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to push us in that direction. Family, in any case, it seems to me, in our common usage, family names a group of persons related by blood or adoption who may or may not currently be in a position of living those relationships daily. I've got, I've got family, you know, perhaps scattered across the nation. Household is a community established by nature for everyday life and the fulfilling of everyday needs. Quotation number six, the household, this is Aristotle. The household is the association established by nature for the supply of men's everyday wants. So I, I think I like to use the notion of domus because I think a domus is, is you know, and President Joe tell me, you know, at some point if you, if you think otherwise, it just seems to me the notion of domus of household more conveys here that we're talking about a social unity of order, that we're talking about a society here that functions together every day. And there's something profound here daily living together in community. It's interesting to have the, the blessing of being among Dominicans who have this kind of supernatural community of daily living together. I mean, refer to the Dominican family. There's, there's so many interesting things with this natural analogous. Right now we're going with the thing where, again, one of my big points is me, where we first learn to think in these terms. I think we're losing a sense of living together with people daily. I think we're losing a sense of living with people closely daily. Imagine to lose a sense for the most natural context of human life. But that's what the household is. I think we're literally, especially the younger generation, they're losing a sense of what it means to live with other human persons in any type of close way daily. To understand this is to see more than just the importance of family. It's a matter of the structures of daily human life. So, so this is not just a matter of saying, hey, you need, you, we need to emphasize the importance of family. I think it's more instructive to say, as regards to this point, we need to emphasize the importance of household. It's not just remember your family, remember there's people that you're related to by blood that you always have this relationship with. That's great and that's worth emphasizing. But as a social unity of order that functions as a common good, that's the domus. That's the community that we're living with every day. Dare I say we're losing a sense for how to live a human life in its most fundamental form. Call me alarmist. I'm willing to argue with you. I'm out there. You're out there too. Further thing to note off the bat about this household, it's the home of real diversity. Real, natural diversity for the sake of the common good. As in a natural whole, there's a difference between parts for the sake of order, for the sake of common good. Ready? Fasten your seatbelt. The primordial instance of this, of difference for the common good in the world of human affairs, surely, 
is the relationship of husband and wife. Difference in complementary roles because of, for the common good. Ladies and gentlemen, if we can't get this right, the natural order and the natural plan for man and woman in their diversity and complementarity for the sake of the common good, if we can't get that right, I present for your consideration, we can't get any real common good right ever. It's the primordial instance of diversity for the common good. Men and women both need to discover and receive the gift of their different natural roles of an order between them for the sake of the children, for the sake of the domus, for the sake of the broader common good, civil and ecclesial, both of which materially depend upon the flourishing domus. Another point about the household. It has its own kind of prudence. Just to note this quickly, because I, I, I like to just push it, try to push it into our, our, our vocabulary, right? What words we're using make a big difference. Domestic prudence. I, I, I want to try to rehabilitate it. I'm going to quote number seven. Right? The, before I remember, so, so, so prudence, you know, that, that queen of the, the virtues in giving order to life, it's three fundamental kinds, individual, we, we normally think of the two kinds, individual, and then there's the political. But then in between, there's a proper prudence that is a domestic prudence. Number seven, the end of domestic prudence is a good life in general. That's an incredibly important phrase. A good life in general, kind of, as it were, the human, the human good as such. This isn't just for a part of life. This is about human life as such. So end of domestic prudence is a good life in general as regards the conduct of the household. I want to give you a couple of lines that I really love. They're worth looking at more. I'm just going to do them quickly in passing. This is from Aristotle's commentary. Sorry, St. Thomas's commentary on the politics. First, the line from the politics. Therefore, it's clear that the care of the household concerns human beings more than material property. St. Thomas makes a big deal of this. And what he's doing is he's making clear the incredible nobility of the ends, the focus, what is domestic prudence about? What is it all about? Here Aristotle infers that the chief aim of parents, kind of qua parents, concerns these two relationships with one another and with their children, is what's clear in context, more than other things. I, I, I love this point here. What is domestic prudence fundamentally about? A man and a woman get married. What is it that they fundamentally share now? What, how to conceive the project that they're in together? What really draws them together? Talk about making a life together. To be called to, to figure out this virtue, domestic prudence, this astounding habitual disposition of putting right order into our communal life every day, starting with the two of us and growing from that 
in our relationships with the children, and then everything else in the household, as this quotation indicates, as ordered to those relationships, because real common goods are always the flourishing of persons together. So the husband and the wife, just to live according to the plan, are, are, are drawn together in having to forge this oh-so-difficult thing. Remember how Socrates says in the Apology, I, I, I spend my days talking about virtue and trying to deliberate and figure out how to get, live the good life. This is what a husband and wife are called to do, to develop domestic prudence together every day. Note how this also points to how much is going on in the household. To the extent that our households are eviscerated of daily life, what are they deliberating about? But in a household that has the richness that is, as it were, of nature, there's so much to deliberate about, so many things that go into that need to be ordered towards getting the relationships right in a virtuous flourishing. My third point about the households, I was just to introduce domestic prudence. But again, I, I, I think that I love to think of domestic prudence as the daily context to live out a marriage. Household is a place to cultivate the key moral disposition of the human person. In many ways, this is kind of my central point. We've already noted the household is a community, a whole with parts, with obviously a discernible common good. What I want to do right now is go Xenophonic. I love Xenophon and his work called Economicus, the Estate Manager. And in, in I might not be reading, you know, Leo Strauss has a, you know, it's, it's, it is a tough work. But here's a line in there that I absolutely love. My mother told me that my job was to be responsible. That's the wife speaking to the husband. And then the husband responds, my father gave me the same advice. Seems to me there's something incredibly profound that is gathered into there. If you were to try to put in one statement what parents are trying to form their children to do, my mother told me my job is to be responsible. My father told me the same thing. Seems to me that we can, we can take that as precisely pointing to forming in them the disposition to refer all that they do to the common good. Maybe I overstate it. I hope not. Seems to me when, I, when I've taught this with my students, I, I ask them, try to put in your own words what you think responsibility means. It's, it's a hard one. When, 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 when the woman says, my mother taught me to be responsible, try to give me a definition of what you think the term responsible there would mean. So here's my shot at it. Taking something as my work, as my own concern, precisely because I owe this to others. There, it seems to me, is, is, is responsibility. I am taking this as my work, mine to do, precisely because I owe it to them. Seems to me that is, in any case, a very close cousin 
of that natural king of moral virtues, legal justice, that refers all things to the common good. I ask you, where is this better exemplified for children than in the parents who exercise domestic prudence well? I want to reemphasize, where else but in committed, self-sacrificing parents is this patterned day in and day out as a matter of justice, as a matter of love? Further, I think it goes without saying that this is the household's the primordial patterning of authority, real authority, that much maligned office that in reality is the root engine making possible our achieving of the common good. Where else are human persons going to realize that someone who has authority is a profound gift to me because it's going to empower me to achieve my good? Is this not what children see precisely in their parents? may put it this way, if children don't experience their parents as, Xenophon, taking responsibility for their, the children's good, day in and day out, appropriately putting it first, proper qualifications, in what context will children learn that there is a common weal worth taking responsibility for? Might this not show us a lot about today? If parents aren't willing to take responsibility at times even at great detriment to their own private goals. If they're not willing to take responsibility for their children, if children don't experience that in the household, where will they ever have a sense of, you know, I need to take responsibility of something for the sake of other people? What's worth taking responsibility for if the flourishing of me and my siblings isn't worth my parents taking responsibility for. Note quickly um, uh, with the next quotation, a special perversion that um, Aristotle, St. Thomas are very concerned about. I love this point. It's a little bit of a, of a sidestep, so I'm not going to spend more than a moment on it. It's quotation number 10. Aristotle speaks of a common perversion that happens in the household. It's when you basically turn economia into economics. In other words, when you turn the, how, the art of household management, or basically domestic prudence, when you make it be more about wealth. Interestingly, Aristotle saw that as kind of the fundamental perversion that tends to sneak into the domus. F fascinating. St. Thomas takes that up, and I'm at quotation number 10. So since commerce is closely related to household management, it seems to some household managers, which of course means parents for our purposes, that what belongs to merchants, namely to be zealous to maintain and increase money without limit, is their duty. And then he goes on with this zinger. If they were to strive to live virtuously, they would be content with things sufficient to sustain nature. But since they omit this effort, they are not most intent on virtue. So they want to live according to their own will. Each of them strives to acquire things with which to satisfy the individual desires. This is this classic treatment of this is, this is the trap of money. 
money in its unlimitedness stands in for the limitlessness of our material desires. And so it's always this trap waiting to get us. And I can share as a, as a husband and father. It, I, I, there's this incredible practical insight of Aristotle and St. Thomas on how this is the danger, especially when you have to work hard to try to make ends meet. There's, there's something that works on you psychologically, kind of gives you a sense of, I got to get this taken care of, I got to get the wealth taken care of, I got to get the wealth taken care of, I got to be out there taking care of the children, right? And, and if you're not very careful, something can go wrong in there. So, something slips, you miss a key principle, and the next thing you know, you've substituted economics for economia. And we're putting our emphasis and our focus in the wrong place in varying degrees. So in the husband and wife, often the drama, key drama of the moral life is, is, is played out. What will we put first? What gives order to life? Wealth is it. Wealth is, is, is always this very tempting alternative. In some of this point, the household is especially suited. Indeed, I say it's de designed to form human persons at the most foundational level, both intellectually and morally. I noted earlier, we must not overlook this causality at work in the spouses and parents. What an astounding natural pedagogy that my love for my wife and then my love for my children, if I'm true to it, will draw me to serve and see a higher good. That is an incredible natural pedagogy. Have you not seen this before? The young man who falls in love, drawn into, drawn into this natural thing, and he gives himself to it. He really does. And all of a sudden, he finds himself he, in, willing much better than he did before. His own love for his wife draws him. That natural pedagogy is at work. It doesn't, certainly doesn't happen simply of itself. The natural pedagogy is there, but, but we have to work with it, and certain things have to converge. I'm going to turn to part three. Household and practice. A couple suggestions toward renewal. One, there needs to be a grassroots turning to re-inhabiting the household for the sake of the common good. A grassroots turning to re-inhabiting this natural daily community for the common good. Nota bene. Doing it for the common good will mean this is not a turning away. If this is done properly, this will not be a retreating from society. This will not be a giving up on society. It will be the way of serving society. We will not be like the Cyclops. The Cyclops has no greater common good for the sake of which he deals law to his wife and children. The Cyclops has no interest in a broader common good. And frankly, at the end of the day, the Cyclops is probably even just dealing law to his wife and children for his own sake. We're not going to be like the Cyclops, or we must be attentive to not be like the Cyclops. But we would turn to the household precisely as a way 
of serving the greater common good. I like to suggest that thinking in terms of rehabilitating, talking in terms of domestic prudence, teaching those getting married, domestic prudence, this is your vocation, this is your challenge, this is your gift. Second suggestion, if the household is to be the home of responsibility, then it must be the home of good work. If I may just kind of flash out into this for just a moment. I know Wendell Berry is controversial for, for good reason. I'm going to give you some quotes that I think are profound. I'm on number 12. Without the household, not just as a unifying ideal, but as a practical circumstance of mutual dependence and obligation, requiring skill, moral discipline, and work, husband and wife find it less and less possible to imagine and enact their marriage. I think there is so much wisdom about marriage in that sentence that needs to be unpacked. Find it difficult to imagine and enact if we don't have a household. As far as I can see, the household Wendell Berry's talking about is what Aristotle meant by a household. It's a place of daily dependence, obligation, requiring skill, moral discipline, and work, real work, real engaging work that brings people together. Here's another great line. Boy, when he gets to work, he's, there is work, there's restorative, convivial, dignified, and dignifying and pleasing. And then perhaps my favorite, good work is the enactment of connections. It is living and a way of living. It's not support for a family in the sense of a brace or prop, but it is one of the forms and acts of love. So if we want to rehabilitate, re-inhabit, reinvest in our households, this, 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 the practical reasoning always comes down to the particular. So I'm, I've really descended into the particulars here because at the end of the day, we're going to have to be concrete. And we're going to have to have people be able to imagine something if we're talking about reinvesting in our households, having a certain kind of work there. And then, and then, of course, we have Schumacher, number 13. The functions of work are at least threefold. To give a man a chance to utilize and develop his faculties. Two, to enable him to overcome his egocentricness by joining with other people in a common task. And then, three, to bring forth goods and services needed for becoming existence. The brilliance of, of small is beautiful, as he says, the modern conception of work just sees values work and compares works to one another just by the products that they produce, rather than these other highly human and humanizing aspects of them, so that we consider work precisely from the viewpoint of it, how is it as an enact form of life, especially in a household. I think that good work in the household is the epicenter, in many ways, of the natural pedagogy, instructing and forming young and old in responsibility, in living as a good part of the whole. Three, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this, I've chosen not to go into it in any detail, Sorry to, 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 to be provocative in that way, but, but because I said it earlier, I need to say it again now. We need to rediscover masculinity and femininity. We can't run from that. We're going to have to do that precisely in the context, its natural context. Masculinity and femininity, in this the modern world does not see, will not see, I don't think. Masculinity and femininity will never really be discerned 
unless we look at them in their natural context, dare I say, what they were first of all designed for, so that men can be fathers and so that women can be mothers, in some sense of that term. The first analogate, of course, being in the household. We have to rediscover that. We can't keep running from it. And we need to look at Ephesians 5. And we need to be serious and try to, and try to unfold it and present it in a way that's going to be livable. Fourth, household, the home of presence and relationship. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a quotation I love from Andrew Lytle. Number 14, this is on, he's talking about technology. My main concern is in technology. There's a great phrase in here I just am going to kind of leave you with. This conflict is between the unnatural progeny of inventive genius and men. It's a war to the death between technology and the ordinary functions of living. There's the line. The ordinary functions of living. The rights to these human functions are the natural rights of man, and they are threatened now in the 20th, not in the 18th century for the first time. Unless man asserts and defends them, he's doomed. To use a chemical analogy to hop like sodium on water, burning up his own energy. This was written in 1930. The ordinary functions of living. I present for your consideration, we are, I go back to the, kind of the earlier point. We're losing a sense of how to live together daily. Name a couple examples, and I'm going to conclude. Discussions around the fire about practical things, about speculative things, storytelling, singing together, praying together qua family. Of course, I already mentioned working together. These natural forms of presence and communion that we cannot underestimate the consequences that they're being taken away from all of us at this point. Have a, I have a quotation in the name of time. I'm going to skip from William Cobbett from his Cottage Economy written in 1821 and then a line from The Hobbit. It, it, it's these simple things. This is not peripheral, I argue. This is where all of us learn to be human. Number 17, I go back to Xenophon. All these things are interconnected. We're going to have to take a holistic approach. The household is the place of a holistic approach. Work, leisure, amusement. There are natural forms of these things that draw us together. They, they, we deliberate about how to do these. Again, here's the daily stuff of domestic prudence. Let's take a holistic approach. Healing and reconnecting in the household is the concrete, daily, even if not so glorious, path to the renewal of the common good. That's my assertion for you. I say it again. Healing and reconnecting in the household is the concrete, daily, even if not so glorious, path to the renewal of the common good. I close with St. Thomas on the household of Job. In the first chapter of his commentary on Job, he's pointing out how the, 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 the author is, is presenting Job as a good man 
And one thing that the, that the scripture there says about Job is it says something about his household, he says, where it's talking about the conviviality that his children had, and they would get together and they would have celebrations together. And St. Thomas quotes number 18. To praise Job even more, the disciplina domus, the discipline of his house is described next which was free from those vices which wealth usually produces. The house of blessed Job was free from these evils for, and he gives this lovely trio with which I leave you. The household of Job was blessed with concord, laughter, and just frugality. Concordia, jocunda et equa frugalitas. I'd like to translate the equa frugalitas as a restrained abundance. In any case, these three, of course, closely mirror how St. Thomas would characterize the broader common good, too. For the sake of that broader common good, perhaps we might focus on having a household more like Job's. Thank you very much.